0: Welcome to the Stories from the Field podcast, the podcast where we talk to working political scientists about how we know what we know, and what field research looks like on the ground. I'm Peter Krauss, Associate Professor of Political Science at Boston College and Research Affiliate in the MIT Security Studies Program. And I'm joined by my co-host, Ora Sekely, Associate Professor of Political Science at Clark University and Director of the Program in Peace and Conflict Studies. Hey, Ora, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you, Peter? Great, thanks.
1: So if you're new to the podcast, in every episode, we talk with political scientists about some of the most important aspects of doing field research based on the book that we co-edited that has the same title, Stories from the Field, A Guide to Navigating Fieldwork in Political Science. On today's episode, we're talking about doing research in areas that are currently experiencing or recently experienced violent conflict. So I guess I want to start by asking you a question, Peter, which is, What do you think are some of the biggest challenges of doing research in conflict-prone or insecure environments?
0: I mean, I think one of the first things that comes to mind is just the difficulty of planning. I mean, Mm -hmm. we both know and everyone who contributed to the volume knows that, you know, when you're planning to do research, often far from home, again, sometimes as we stress in the book, fieldwork can be right in your own backyard. But for many people, it means going to a foreign country, uh, living in an environment that's maybe uh, something they're not used to, maybe speaking a language that they're not as good at as their native language, um, having to plan to interview people, get access to archives, uh, do uh, participant observation at protests, whatever it is, that takes a lot of planning and a lot of work and nothing ever goes fully to plan anyway when you're in a very calm environment. If you add then that you're studying an environment that's maybe post-conflict or perhaps in some cases you're even doing research where there's ongoing conflict, all of those things not only get more challenging, but you also face greater risks. Risks in terms of having your research suddenly cut off, you having to maybe leave the country, you being unable to interview people maybe because you know the line of control or the front lines of a conflict are shifting, people who wanted to say that they would talked to you before now won't because things became more polarized. You know, all of these challenges we faced anyway doing fieldwork, I think, get upped when you talk about doing field research in a conflict-prone environment. The other things I'll add to that are when you're trying to get permissions, whether to talk with people or from IRBs, that obviously becomes more difficult when we're talking about these types of environments. And then for your own risks, you know, I'll always, it's not just any risk means you won't do it. You have to think of your own personal choice, what you're willing to, uh, to undergo. But it certainly is a key concern in trying to gauge how risky an environment is, how violent it is, um, what is the risk that are going to come to you, and then not just to you, but to those around you. Um, Those are all really, really important considerations. So those are some of the first things that I think about when I think about specific challenges for doing research in conflict-prone environments. Uh, What about you? For sure. I mean, I I
1: think about a lot of those things as well, particularly uh, you know a lot of the issues that you raise with regard to risk. I also think a lot about the challenge of not endangering our research participants, because of course there are a lot of places where not only might a foreigner, particularly in some places uh, a North American, be considered a target for one reason or another, those around them can also become targets. Right, so you don't you don't ever want to endanger, you know, like people who happen to be on the same bus as you, sure. or people who, um, you know, happen to be in some other public space along with you. So the question of okay, how do I assess the risk for me of being in such an environment is coupled with this question of not just what kind of risk am I willing to take on, but what kind of risk am I willing to impose on other people? Just you know, sort of in our general environment. And that's also true, of course, for our research participants. So we don't ever want somebody to face retaliation for talking to a researcher, for instance. You don't ever want, you know, the secret police or... The, you know the military or some armed group to find out that someone talked to a researcher and then retaliate against them as a result and I you know I think the IRB process is actually a really important part of that because when an IRB is functioning properly, part of their job is to help raise those questions for the researcher and then help them think through strategies to avoid those risks, whether that's about data security, whether it's about structuring our research in such a way that people's anonymity, is maintained or that their identities are kept confidential if anonymity is impossible, whether it's thinking about research logistics such that nobody participation can ever be traced back to them, right? So trying to protect our research participants is a big one. More broadly, I also think it's really important to think about why we're doing research in conflict-prone environments or places that are actually experiencing conflict in the first place, right? Are we doing that research for the right reasons? And I think that is overwhelmingly true for the vast majority of political scientists, that people are engaged in this research because they have a profound curiosity about really important questions and they want to do research that's going to help us understand war. They want to do research that's going to help the people whose experience they're trying to understand. But it's also important to flag, I think, that conflict tourism, thrill-seeking research that's driven by kind of a macho culture that's probably going to be really bad research. It's probably going to end up endangering not just researchers, but also the people who the research would ideally be helping. So I think that's something that, you know, those are just questions that we want to ask ourselves ahead of time, right? Like, why am I doing this? And, and in what spirit am I approaching the core questions that I'm interested in asking?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's dead on. I mean, I think the whole idea of, you know, people who are, you know, quote unquote, storm chasers or going to a place so they can get a quote unquote okay, exactly. war story, that's sometimes a stereotype we have maybe of, of certain journalists or otherwise. And, you know, to be clear, even doing that takes some degree of bravery Absolutely. to kind of put yourself in that environment. But at the same time, um, that's not necessarily what we're talking about. when We're talking about, you know, systematic, rigorous uh, social science fieldwork, where not only are you not just kind of parachuting in, parachuting out, but also you have kind of a long term interest and hopefully engagement relationship with the people and with the region that you're studying uh, that as you said very articulately before uh, you are understanding you know the impact that you're having on local people's reputation on how you know their environment which they have to live in all the time is being affected by your presence and so yeah i think that's obviously a really important point for any researcher and it's a key thing i think that we thought a lot about when we were assembling contributors for this volume right was bringing together people who do you know serious ethical research where that's right at the forefront of why they decide to work where they do and how they do And yeah, I've been really impressed with all the contributions in that regard. So uh, I agree with all of your key points there.
1: Absolutely. So we are so excited today to be joined by two scholars who have done research in this sort of area for many, many years Zoe Marks, lecturer at the Harvard Kennedy School, and Will Reno, professor and chair of the political science department at Northwestern University. We'll begin by chatting with each guest individually before bringing them together for a panel discussion. So We'll start with Zoe. Zoe, welcome. Hi, Aura. Hi, Peter. Thanks for having me. So, Zoe, I'm going to start by asking you about cooking. In your chapter, you write about cooking as a way of connecting with your research participants. You wrote, there was no obvious connection between cooking and my research. I was in Sierra Leone to examine how insurgency changes over time and how the RUF was able to sustain a decade-long civil war despite minimal support and largely coercive recruitment. And then you go on to explain how cooking became a way of connecting to your interviewees. So can you tell a little bit more about that and and how that kind of activity helped shape your work in Sierra Leone?
2: Absolutely. I think one of the things that we don't really talk about before we embark on field work is what you're supposed to do while you sit around and wait. And I found that I'd heard a lot about, you know, Every other culture in the world, I was coming from the UK, I'm originally American, and I was like, every other culture in the world has amazing hospitality. So I was primed for hospitality, but I didn't really know how to balance hospitality with just sitting around and waiting, with meeting my basic needs of having to get meals, and then also trying to fit in interviews. And so what ended up happening, unsurprisingly, particularly when I was in rural communities, is that there were no restaurants, there was nowhere to get food, and my guests and hosts alike would often have food on the go and so I ended up spending many hours either sitting and waiting inside or going outside to the kitchen or the cooking fire in the back where there were invariably more people because there was food on the go and so what ended up happening for me was at least half of my fieldwork conversations happened around these cooking pots and cooking fires rather than just sort of sitting inside waiting for the next thing to happen and that I think is what inspired the chapter that I wrote for this volume is really thinking about what I learned from that experience and also beginning to try to systematize why we would go to a cooking fire rather than just sit indoors with our informants and interlocutors.
1: One of the insights that you share in your chapter that comes out of this experience of watching people cook, specifically watching women cook, that I find most interesting is with regard to gender and violence. So you mentioned that watching boys kill chickens and then women prepare them for the stew helped you to understand how men and women are socially conditioned for particular forms of violence. So can you describe the moment that you first realized this
2: and then how that helped shape your research going forward? It's hard to say when I first realized anything in Sierra Leone. I first (laughs) went in 2008 and I'd be there this summer if it wasn't for the pandemic. But you start to layer knowledge with observation, and then with questions, and then with more observation, and then more questions. And then finally, for me, at least, I hit a hard barrier, which was where the observations and experiences I'd had kind of collided with a red line that I wasn't allowed to cross as a woman, which was when I asked if I could kill my own chicken. And the men that I had been Hanging out with and interviewing for about two weeks, put their collective foot down and said, Absolutely not. It was going to bring bad karma to the compound, to me. Nobody could quite articulate why I wasn't allowed to do it. But it was only through that kind of final rupture of my attempt to really transform myself from being a vegetarian into somebody who was fully socialized in the cooking ways of Sierra Leone. And I found out that actually I couldn't fully socialize myself the way that I'd seen these young eight-year-old, 10-year-old, 12-year-old boys killing chickens, because as a woman, it actually wasn't my task to kill the chicken. It was only my task Mm -hmm. to prepare it. So I had kind of learned all of this culinary technique. And then this other thing that I felt like I really should experience myself was actually not for me to experience. And that took a long time. It was 10 months in before I was trying to kill a chicken. And it would have probably happened. I'm sure I would have been terrible at it. Like you can't rewrite history, but I'm, I'm grateful that there was a strong enough cultural norm against the chicken killing that somebody else did it.
1: <laughs> as, as a long-term vegetarian, I absolutely sympathize with that.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a, you know, very insightful point. Uh to follow up on that, Zoe, in the chapter, you know, when you're talking about these women that you're interacting with, both cooking and kind of interviewing them, you know, these women have lived through some really traumatic experiences, but they've also been connected with groups that have committed atrocities. So, one of the things that I know we all struggle with, but we'd love to get your insights on is, how do you balance empathy for the person you're interviewing with with kind of objectivity regarding their position in the conflict?
2: I'm so glad that you asked this question and It is, I think, in some ways, the only question that matters for those of us who study political violence and conflict is the moral orientation we bring, not just to the people, but to the questions that we're asking. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that I've ever really learned the answer. But I, I know that for me, empathy for the people I work with kind of begins with trying to understand their story as part of a lived experience that began before they ever anticipated encountering the violence that I'm ostensibly trying to study before they had a role in it, before it came to be. And so a lot of my research uses a kind of life history Approach to interviews as a way to really position any person that I'm talking to in the moment that they first encountered, in this case, the rebel group that they were participating in, or in the case of the military that was fighting against the rebels, you know, when did they become recruited? How did they become recruited? And then what were their experiences? And so for me, I think trying to understand the full person has really helped to to locate any particular perpetration or victimization of violence rather than reducing people to what we might otherwise see appear in a data set as an event of violence or harm. So I would say that's probably like the most concrete way that I try to approach it. But the other thing that I find really challenging with these stories and power dynamics is that it lives long past the conflict itself, right? Like I think sometimes we think that there's these perpetrators who you meet after the conflict and it's like, how do you reconcile with their past? Or how do you reconcile with their victimhood? But actually those power dynamics continue forever. So as long as we're kind of grappling with our own power in society and who we're taking advantage of or who we're being exploited and marginalized by. There are so many layers to encountering and building relationships with people anywhere. And in fieldwork, it's just sort of amplified because you're trying to be attuned to it. And it's very new.
0: I mean, I think that's well said. And you know, to ask you further about your point you just said on layers, one of the other things you say in the chapter is that you call cooking, quote, a deliberate act of feminist solidarity. So can you explain kind of what you mean by that and how does that fit into this concept of layers of power and layers of empathizing with you kind of your interview subjects or the people you're engaging with?
2: I'm glad that you asked those questions together because the funny thing about the newness of the relationships that we build in fieldwork for the first time, right? And then you continue to have these new relationships becoming old for many years if you if you keep going back to the field sites. And I'm sure Will will talk about that as well. But when I first started making relationships with people in Sierra Leone, I was really embraced as this very strong young woman. And so they used to say that I had a man heart or that I was a manager. I would be like a great rebel. And I took pride in this. Who wouldn't? But um, that also meant that I was being coded socially as a man. I was a foreigner. I was a visitor. I had this sort of radical potential for autonomy and moving around and lots of freedom and resources. And I was doing something that the people I was interacting with, Had never experienced, which was doing research. And so I was able to kind of cash in on this social masculinity that meant that I was kind of powerful and free from the drudgery of domestic work. I could meet with people who most women wouldn't be able to meet with. And to do the feminist act of solidarity of cooking, it was a way to kind of reorient attention that was otherwise just me sitting around talking with men in a parlor or a sitting room or on a porch or a veranda. And instead showing that, like, actually, I also care about these women's stories, I also want to spend time with them. And so I saw it as sort of my responsibility, as a young woman, as a visitor, as a researcher, to make sure that I was balancing the scales and not just kind of uh, reinforcing the patriarchal power dynamics of all Sierra Leone.
1: One term that I've heard a lot of women involved in international development work and also women who are who are researchers use is honorary man status, mm-hmm. which is I know exactly what that phrase means and it also, it's a very complicated and in some ways, not a problematic concept, but it's a difficult concept. And I like your framing of social masculinity and the, the way that you're engaging with this. That feels like a much clearer framework for this. So I'm grateful for that.
2: Oh, thank you. Yeah. I would say, I mean, I was also always acutely feminized, And so Mm -hmm. that's maybe a whole other podcast, but something we can get into later is that I was definitely not an honorary man, right? That's part of this idea of having a man heart was that they saw me as having this courage and autonomy and freedom Mm -hmm. that, like I said, was socially masculine. But there was also all of the other gender dynamics that I was constantly juggling. And I think that's really important particularly for, for women to understand, but also for anybody who has friends and colleagues and mentees who are female and working in the field in a feminized role. It's, it's just, there's a lot to hold on to. And so even just being able to cook and being able to move in and out of the domestic space and the sort of more professional or research focused space was, I think it just gave me more dimensions in which to craft my own identity, but also get to know people and build relationships. And you still weren't allowed to kill your own chicken. Still couldn't kill the chicken. (laughs) No. And I still can't even articulate why, which if that isn't like a research failing, I don't know what is.
1: (laughs) So I want to shift gears now just for just a minute and, and ask you a slightly different question. In post-conflict environments, for whatever definition of post-conflict or post we're working with, the legacies of war can be everywhere, but at the same time, they're often invisible in many ways to outsiders or to people who didn't live through the war. So how do you deal with that? How do you negotiate that? Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about how you navigate these hidden social traumas and divisions that can be legacies of the very war that you are interested in learning about? but that can also make research feel very fraught in a lot of ways.
2: It's an important and hard question to answer. I don't know how you navigate it. I can tell you that the first time I went to Sierra Leone, there was another young woman traveling at the same time as me for research. And we knew one another and I left and I was talking to her after my month in the country. And, and I was you know reflecting on how healed and moved on things felt on the surface. And she had the totally opposite experience and thought that everyone's eyes looked vacant and traumatized. And this was 2008. And I don't know which one of us was even closer to getting it right. But I do know that one thing that has been incredibly useful for me has been going back to the country. And this isn't realistic for everyone. And it certainly isn't realistic for shaping your immediate research outputs. If you want to publish your work relatively quickly, you can't necessarily get a decade of kind of perspective. But being able to go back has given me a number of things that help to grapple with that exact question of, you know, what are you seeing on the surface and what's really there? Because I've got close, close informants and interlocutors who I've worked with for years who just walking one day will tell me about the dreams that they're having. And they sound very much like PTSD Mm. dreams that I've never heard of before and never would have been able to guess at. And there's no question that I could have asked that would have opened that conversation. And so I think that if you can go back, just being able to watch a country and relationships and people evolve is incredibly powerful for getting away from the kind of presentism and cross-sectional approach that we tend to take towards field work, where it's you meet somebody in a role and they become the role. Mm -hmm. If you go a couple of times, usually they've left that role and you can see what was them and what was the role, or you can see what was the conflict and what was that particular situation or circumstance that they were grappling with, whether it's poverty or an immediate loss or something that happened in the past. And so that's been, you know, learning time, I think, has been one of the most valuable lessons from fieldwork. And that kind of cuts against the grain of thinking about trauma as an event.
1: You write about this pretty explicitly in your chapter two, you write that the afterlife of fieldwork cannot be contained within the parameters of its premise as a well-defined research exchange. So to what extent then should we think about fieldwork or have you experienced fieldwork as being about more than just this like very finite bookended experience of data gathering and something that is maybe a longer term experience where you, you know, you go and come back, or maybe even if you never return to your field site, you maintain some kind of relationship. How do you think about those long-term relationships extending past a research trip?
2: Yeah, it's something that I've come to because the first mode failed me. So I sort of thought the first few times I went to the field, I was learning as I went as most of us, I think, do. And why you wrote this book is so that we could learn from other people's mistakes rather than just our own. (laughs) Once I got a job, I was like, I need to really professionalize my fieldwork and really set clear boundaries. And I'd always had business cards, but it was like the professionalism was sort of contained to pretending that I was really serious. And I was trying to get more and more kind of regimented And it just completely backfired. It did not serve me and it didn't serve the people that I was working with because they had hopes and aspirations and expectations and preoccupations and vulnerabilities. And I had all of those as well. And so I think relational research feels more genuine to me, not from a sort of touchy-feely perspective, but it feels like actually trying to professionalize and squeeze out any room for uncertainty or contestation, that is too fragile for me and it hasn't worked well. And so thinking about research as a kind of relational ethical conundrum, I think is more useful because then you can figure out, okay, who are the people with whom I am going to have ongoing communication and how do I treat them And who are the people for whom we met once and it was fine and it was what everyone expected the meeting to be and I'll never think of them again and they won't think of me again and we'll both move on. And that exchange was like kind of a research transaction. And I think those are two pretty different things. But I think most interactions that we have in field work or even in our home institutions, you can kind of put it in one of those two camps and you need to know which camp you're dealing with so that you can treat people with respect. So I think that reciprocity really comes out of identifying that there is this other category of research relationships and they're worth cultivating and investing in, but they have a different valence than the ones that you can maybe put down on a business card, for example.
0: I think that's a great way to wrap uh, this segment, Zoe. Thank you so much for sharing your great insights, not only on your chapter, but on fieldwork in general. Uh, We're going to be back with you very shortly. For now, we'll say a brief goodbye and we'll turn to Will Reno, professor and chair of political science at Northwestern University. Welcome, Will. Ah, thank you. Delighted to, to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. When reflecting in your chapter about fieldwork in Somalia, you wrote that, quote, the value of this field research lay in the stark contrast between reality on the ground in Mogadishu and reports by international organizations and government agencies. Why do you think there is or was such a disconnect uh, between what you were seeing on the ground and the way that it was being reported outside?
3: Yeah, I mean, the disconnect was was pretty radical. I mean, it's not surprising that You know, NGOs, government agencies, international organizations behave differently in the field than what their documents say. But I think what struck me was um, the extent to which the behavior in the field, what I was observing, reflected a set of interests of the outsiders that was, in a lot of cases, completely different. Than the information, the material that I had before I came to the field. You know, and I think this is part of the value of field research is it's the reality check. So you discovered the unknown, maybe in hindsight. Uh, it doesn't seem so shocking, but but it, it really took that disjuncture for me to identify and pursue some important, interesting questions.
0: I mean, I think that makes sense. Now you're suggesting this, but I wanted to ask, do you feel like that this has been a common occurrence in your fieldwork? I know you've done fieldwork in a, a wide variety of countries across uh, Africa. Is this something where, you know, the situation you had in Mogadishu, this big disconnect between either what were you were expecting or at least what other people were saying versus what you saw with your own eyes, is that something that you've come upon again and again? And if so, you know, why is that? Is it because, as you say, people have different interests or people have different lenses? How would you describe it?
3: I guess the way I would describe it is that in Mogadishu, the foreign interaction, a lot of them were were faking it. And they were in Somalia for reasons that had very little to do with Somalia. And I I think that that's a different situation than, say, seeing peacekeeping contingent that's adapting to a particular context. You know, in that sense, I, I really do think it was different. So, for example, something like security force assistance to Somalia's army that just conceptually, that whole program or that whole prospect, it just doesn't fit the mm-hmm. situation in Somalia. The context is completely different. I mean, there's something called an army, but but that's not what it is. And the people who were responsible for training those soldiers found themselves, I think, doing something completely different. And, you know, and I think that that's a very interesting political question as to You know, what exactly is going on in a situation like that? So I thought that it was particularly extreme in in the Somalia case. You know, I've had that experience in other places, in Afghanistan, for example. You know, and this is just a general insight about conflict and the extent to which there are layers of interests and layers of actors. And a lot of times they're doing very different things all at the same Mm -hmm. time.
1: So, I want to turn now to a broader kind of almost logistical question about doing research in insecure environments. So, you write in your chapter about the necessity of finding local hosts in Somalia. So, I'm curious to hear you talk a bit more about the role that local connections play in doing research safely in fragile and insecure environments, in conflict zones? And then how do you assess those local connections in the first place? How do you know that the person who's going to be your host is in fact a safe person to have hosting you? How do you do that at the very beginning of the research process?
3: Well, wow, that's a that's a really hard question. I think in a nutshell, what happened in Somalia was that originally I had been visiting Hargeisa in Somali land. So that's autonomous, self-declared independent republic in the north. And that's a much safer environment, but it's, it's connected to the broader Somali politics. So in the first instance, it was an opportunity to begin to learn the logic of connections, the logic of networks. And this is very central to my research agenda, looking at the organization of armed groups and how they use violence in in different instrumental ways and how that reflects on a character of warfare. So from a standoff position, to be able to first observe and then to figure out what are the right questions to ask when it comes to security. And the question in this case was, what interest does the person I'm with have to protect me versus sell me to somebody else or, you know, otherwise betray me or, or whatever. And the answer cannot be that you pay that person uh, because then maybe somebody else can can just pay them more. And then at that point, you risk going down a rabbit hole. But, you know, some of it's about mutual obligations and some of it's about that person signaling in their broader mm-hmm. environment. So there can be benefit to the person or to that network by protecting an outsider. And that, that goes beyond just simply the Relationship between the outsider and that person. So that's kind of the beginning.
0: (laughs) I mean, I think you're right. It's a huge question, and you know, we appreciate the initial insight on that, which I think is very helpful for researchers starting out in the field and trying to keep you know both themselves and their their subjects safe. A broader question for you, Will, and I don't want to date you, but you have more experience in the field than than I do, and Aura does, and and Zoe does. I I believe you've been doing research for a few decades now, which is you know some of the reasons your work is so good. I had to ask you a quick question about that, which is, you know, what changes have you felt like you've seen over time? And I don't just necessarily mean on the ground in some of these countries you've gone back to. But I mean, in the broader subfield, if there is a subfield, quote unquote, of people who do field work, whether it's the methods that people use or the approaches they do or how they do their research. Could you talk a little bit about what you see as the major changes that have happened uh, in the course of your career with field research and whether you think those things are kind of, you know, to the better or to the worse uh, for the broader field? Oh, big changes. Social media is one. And,
3: you know, you have to think back three decades ago. I mean, I was working in Sierra Leone. I moved there in in 1989. And, you know, if you wanted to communicate back to your university, other colleagues, to your family and so forth, it was, you know, sitting in a, a dark phone booth in the central telephone headquarters and somebody saying, is Sierra Leone calling United States? Are we reaching? And, you know, you would do that maybe once every other month. And now you walk around with your smartphone and you're texting back and forth and so forth. I mean, how that has just radically increased the accessibility, I think, between researcher and research subjects and, and then you know, and then there's the other layer, which is that you don't just visit people to interview them, but then you, you're connected to them because they want to—I don't know—friend you in Facebook, or more likely today, mm-hmm. you know, LinkedIn, or send you their favorite TikTok videos and, and that sort of thing. So there's that connectivity which about a decade ago, I think really started to take off in Africa. And then uh, the other one is IRB, the Research Subject Protection Protocols. I mean, when did that happen? I think most universities, it was the early 2000s that they started coming around to social scientists for that. So people complain about it, but I think it's also a very positive change over the years. And that is just to force you to think more responsibly, more systematically about your research. And then also, uh, it it can protect in, I think, important and sometimes unanticipated ways. So when I started in West Africa, people I talked to later, the international community decides that some of them might have committed war crimes, or crimes against humanity, this sort of thing. Well, then you have a dilemma. (laughs) You promised these people confidentiality. Are you going to turn over records to a prosecutor who's contacted you from overseas? And so IRB can be an important shield, I think, for the researcher in situations like this. I mean, there are other considerations one has to has to piece out. But but I think those are some of the major changes. and There are others as well, but those stand out.
0: I, mean, I think that makes sense. And, you know, to be honest, there's an infamous case from my own university uh, dealing a bit with that, where, you know, something that faculty weren't involved with, but the Belfast tapes where they promised anonymity for former IRA members and, um, you know, unionist individuals in Northern Ireland. And, you know, there's obviously a whole kerfuffle about that. But in any case, long and short, I understand what you're saying, Will. Uh, just a quick follow up on the IRB point. You know, I know that you are now serving as the chair of the department. Has your viewpoint on IRB and these issues shifted at all since you went from being an academic? who is doing his own research to now someone who's increasingly kind of overseeing the work of others, whether it's graduate students of your own or whether it's, you know, being the chair of a broader department. Are there any other insights you've gotten from this whole process that either make you like it, dislike it, things that you think should be changed, etc.?
3: I like it more and more. <laughs> and maybe that's a viewpoint as an administrator, so I become sort of like the mother hand of IRB compliance in mm-hmm. in the department. And again, it's this this idea that procedure can also offer protection. I mean, it can be a pain in the ass a lot of times. And Northwestern University, we benefit because I think for social science, we have a particularly good IRB, and that's because they listen to us to learn more about how researchers conduct themselves how they assess risk and so forth and what the relationship between researcher and research community may be in conflict zones so we actually helped our office of risk management write protocols to try to educate our social science IRB okay so that's a particular situation but you know with the pandemic and various crises around the world just having that procedural protection when other people come around and start asking questions, you know, why were you in Baghdad? What were you doing in Mogadishu? (laughs) That what this does is, it makes this kind of research legible to other people who might be inclined to, I don't know, look skeptically at at field research in conflict zones, or just simply try to shut it down because they think maybe it's just too risky, or it's. And when they think it's too risky, oftentimes they think it's too risky to their bureaucracy. So think of IRB as a, as, as a shield, maybe a necessary evil in some cases, and try to be nice to your IRB and and talk to them and. Tell them how it is that you do your research and and what the value of it is. And I, I think that there are a lot of people who will listen.
1: As a as a former member and chair of my university's IRB, I thank you heartily for the Be Nice to Your IRB comment, which I thoroughly endorse. So speaking of right, this interaction between local population and researchers and, and what that relationship is like, I want to ask you a little bit more about that dynamic. So you advise researchers to, quote, figure out what you will do with requests for assistance, and also to, quote, expect contacts to Google you and Google again, uh, maybe even friending you on Facebook. So can you talk a little bit more about dealing with some of these issues about both the, the social media component and the sort of like longer term relationship component?
3: That's a hard one, too. And I think Zoe had pointed to this. It's difficult to confine the relationship to just some sort of, oh, you know, purely professional transactional relationship. And, mm-hmm. and it's that, you know, the imperative to treat people with respect to oftentimes get to know them because this is ho- how you have to do your work. But then, of course, it's not a surprise that people come to you with their own concerns. And, you know, maybe it's just that you decide that you're friends. Well, <laughs> that has that shaped your, your relationship as a researcher. But this is, I, I think, inevitable. The longer that you focus on a particular place, the more uh, you become connected to the people there, the more you become pulled into that which you are studying And in some cases, maybe you become, in some small way, a part of what you're studying. And that, I think, is just an inherent dilemma that the researcher has to piece out. On a personal level, what do you do with requests for assistance? You know, are there quid pro quos? Uh, Are there things that you should do for them? And a lot of this is just the imperative to act responsibly Sometimes it means setting clear boundaries about what you can and what you can't do. Again, IRB can sometimes help you with that as well and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and learn through experience. But that, that is a very complicated question. And I, I think that it's also something that's very much rooted in particular context as to how one handles that.
1: So I think that's a good point at which to shift into our panel discussion, where we we all come together to talk more broadly about some of the issues of doing field research in conflicted, fragile, and insecure environments. So I guess I want to start with a broad question for both of you, both to Will, and and thank you so much, Will, for all of your insights. And then we'll we'll go to Zoe. I want to start with a phrasing question. Are there issues with terms like conflict zone or unstable areas, right? What do you think of that terminology? And what are the best ways for researchers to conceptualize and prepare to work in areas which have experienced conflict without biasing our perceptions of the place and its people before you've even arrived or even after you've gone? Zoe, why don't you go first?
2: You want me to go first, or Ouch, that's a hard one. I was going to say, you should definitely start with Will, who has active war zone all over his research resume. But I will just share a couple of anecdotes. One is that I started a project that was looking at sort of post-conflict, in air quotes, trajectories in Sierra Leone and in Eastern Congo, because both countries had a peace agreement signed about the same time in history, and one remained a protracted conflict with increasing levels of armed group fragmentation while the other became a consolidated peace context. And as soon as I started talking about it, everybody in the Congo research community was up in arms because even though there were quotes around post-conflict, they were like, you can't talk about it that way. That's totally irresponsible. And then in Sierra Leone, (laughs) there was another outcry of talking about post-conflict because the country was really trying to get rid of the conflict affiliation entirely and say, no, we're facing the new Sierra Leonean Renaissance. And so I think that it's important to recognize that it is fraught and it is not fraught necessarily just for the technical definitional reasons that we might think in terms of what is our subject of study, what is our scope condition, et cetera. But really like what is the power of the language and the framing and does it resonate with the people that we're researching with or of or from? And so I don't know that there's necessarily a clear cut answer, but it's useful to at least make your starting point. How do people think of their own context? Do they talk about it as though it's war? And so later in in the short history of my time in Sierra Leone, there was the Ebola outbreak. And people talked about Ebola as though it was like the war. And that was one of the most common parallels that people drew. And now they talk about COVID, like it's Ebola, which was like the war. And so just the sort of last thing I'll say to help people think about what your own lived experience is, if you have the choice of going in and out of places affected by armed conflict and your own home context hasn't been... You might think about it in terms of visiting a COVID wherever you're from, right? And there's an element of which everything is different. And there's also an element to which it's not that different. And I think that's one of the ways that it's helpful to just kind of do the mental math of what is this thing and how different is it from what it could have been if I wasn't going during or after a conflict has occurred.
3: How about you, Will? I mean, it's interesting to listen to what people from Research sites say they think conflict is, or what they think is, political instability. Because I mean, one of the things that I've experienced is concern among some of the people that I have contact with about the situation in the United States. And two days ago, just having a phone conversation with somebody who's in Afghanistan, and he was concerned about news that maybe the American president wanted to delay the election and that people were. Possibly going to have trouble voting. And uh, he wanted to know what the Army's position on this would be. You know, how would the Army in the United States act if the president delayed the election? And, you know, this is somebody from outside the United States <laughs> identifying political instability. So, I mean, that sort of works both ways. And I think it's very important to listen to how people in the particular place you're working or are defining it and, you know, thinking about it in those terms.
0: So, However we d- decide to define or talk about or conceptualize the places where we're doing field research, a question I have for each of you, and uh, Zoe, I'll start with you, is how do you think about and how do you try to ensure your security and the security of those around you when you're going into an insecure environment? You know, Do you have personal red lines at which point you decide to either pull the plug on research or decide not to go to a place in the first place? What are kind of your standards or the ways that you conceptualize this stuff, Zoe, when you're planning either to do field work or while you're already in an area?
2: This is a really important question, and it's one that changes with every new context I visit. And I actually, I'll build on the last question, because one of the other things I was thinking about listening to Will's response was last summer when I was in Nigeria, I was preparing to go up to the Northeast to Maiduguri, which is the sort of epicenter of the Boko Haram counterinsurgent campaign. And in Lagos, everyone was like, you can't go there. You have to take a helicopter. You need an armed convoy. I can get you armed men. And then I get to Maydugri and everybody's like, it's so peaceful. This is like, you can go anywhere you want. It's totally fine. Nothing will happen to you. Like the government compound had at the time an open gate, open walls. But I had a, a PhD student with me and that totally transformed my comfort level with known and unknown risk. And I think that it pinpoints what I've really struggled with the longer I've been in my career, because the longer I'm in my career, the harder it is to find stretches of time to really go to a place and warm up and get to know it and stay long enough to feel like I can read the signs of what is safe and what is percolating with something that might be a little bit more risky. And so now I have to do fieldwork in these much shorter pockets of time, and they don't give me very much wiggle room to get to know things. And so the thing that happened last summer that actually was the first time I'd ever kind of pulled the plug, if you will, on a visit was that there were increasingly close attacks happening within about 20 minute drive from where we were. And there wasn't information available about what was going on. The government was sort of withholding information. They've continued to be very circumspect with releasing information about attacks and injuries and fatalities. And so I felt like this is a sort of classic researcher problem. I didn't have enough information to make good decisions on behalf of my own safety, but also more importantly, my student's safety. And so I cut the the trip by a couple of days and said, you know what, we're going to have to go because I can't get enough information to make an informed decision. And I think that was really instructive for me because I hadn't realized until I was in an information poor environment, just how dependent I was on my own ability to kind of make those judgment calls. Well... I think you mentioned something once in an email,
1: maybe something called the ice cream rule. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
3: Yes, the ice cream rule. <laughs> well, the ice cream rule, this began as, as an effort to try to reassure relatives. And that is, if one is working in Baghdad, what do you do uh, Oh, in between um, engagements and so forth? Well, go get ice cream. And there's a wonderful ice cream parlor near the Baghdad University, and that's a good place to take a photo sitting outdoors under a parasol eating pistachio ice cream. Mm -hmm. That shows how safe it is. I mean, if you can show yourself and, you know, people are casually walking by and so forth. But I think that that is actually sort of a rule because in trying to apply the ice cream rule in Mogadishu, uh, that doesn't work because I A foreigner like myself really cannot safely sit out on a veranda eating an ice cream because this will attract unwanted attention and maybe some bad things will happen. And eventually, I decided I could not work in Mogadishu safely. And a lot of this is just simply related to, you know, what is the information worth? I mean, you're just doing this, I mean, partly because we're interested in it and we like the people we meet, but it's also you know, it's part of your job, it's part of your career and your profession, but it's, it's not worth really bad things happening to you or the people that you're with to to go ahead and pursue this. So I think being able to sit out, eat an ice cream is, you know, maybe that's a good, that's a good threshold. You know, the other question about getting information about conditions around you, I've worked with, a lot of graduate students who are from areas uh, that I am working and who have insights and who have connections, who have access to important information that I would not otherwise have access. So this has been important in terms of assessing what particular developments mean and making decisions about what's too much or how to refocus efforts and so forth. But this has been a learning process. And as I said, in Somalia, I did make the decision that this just was not worth it. And it was a late decision because it was in the middle of the night and there was a firefight. So I was protected mm-hmm. by. The group that I was with, but is that worth it? So that was the end of that, and not before getting stuck in an elevator in Mogadishu. But that's a different story. And if you want to hear more (laughs)
0: about that, you can read Will's chapter in Stories from the Field. But uh, yeah, no, Will. I think that was you know very helpful. I think the ice cream rule is a nice offhand one to think about the one's own safety and uh, what it's worth. And Zoe, I thought your points were excellent as well. How you think about safety and security, but also how those thoughts change when you're concerned with others' safety, not just your own. And so, Zoe, I have a question for you kind of related to this. So we've talked a lot about the environment and if the environment in a broad inhuman or uh, not direct sense is secure or not. But when we do the most core thing that you guys are doing when you're doing fieldwork, which is interviews, I have a question about that, which is this. You guys are sometimes talking with civilians you're sometimes talking with former combatants, you're sometimes talking with or interviewing current combatants. So for those out there who are graduate students or those thinking of doing interviews like this for the first time, could you talk a little bit, Zoe, about how or to what extent you shift gears between those conversations? Like, is it a different interview approach when you're talking with a civilian versus a combatant? Do you have a different mindset? Are there different ways of relating to the person or establishing, you know, chemistry or getting back to previous things we talked about, empathy? Like, what is your approach when you're interviewing different types of individuals?
2: I wouldn't say that there's a categorical difference, but I do think one of the things that is a sort of subtext to your question is this really interesting kind of dance of how much of what you know do you reveal and when to the person you're interviewing. So I often would, especially in my earlier field work, kind of not play dumb, but you know really do a lot more listening than talking. And that actually goes back to some of the best life advice I've ever been given, which was from a Ugandan Jesuit priest before I went to spend a summer doing peace research in Ethiopia. And he said, you know, just listen, don't talk, you know, and and that, especially for a white person from America, that's really like all you need to know if you're going to Africa for, it wasn't the first time, but it was, you know, the second time I'd, I'd gone and it was really humbling. Um, and so I really took that with me the first few visits I did to Sierra Leone. But gradually you also kind of need to like move along and you don't have time to hear every life history and you don't have time to hear the sort of, layperson's version of events, you need to get to the like, so and so says this, and so and so says that, like, what's the truth. And I think that the thing to keep in mind is, when you go back to the question you asked, when you're talking to a civilian or a combatant or an ex combatant or a military general versus a foot soldier, the question is really like, what are you doing with the posture you take or the information you reveal? To sort of predict what the conversation will ultimately look like and what's possible. And so, one of the things that I think is important and which I try to do is not close off potential avenues that could be revealed to me. So, it's the like, to use Will's turn of phrase earlier, the unknown unknowns. You don't want to just treat somebody like they've only had one type of experiences so that they don't reveal to you the other type of experiences they've had. You want to try and and maintain enough openness that they'll tell you what it is you don't know or don't expect.
0: Well, what are your thoughts on this in terms of when you're interviewing, again, for lack of a better term, quote, different types of people, but I think as Zoe says very correctly, you don't necessarily want to typecast people either and say, oh, this is a combatant. Oh, this is a civilian. People certainly wear many different hats over the course of their lives and maybe even in the moment you're chatting with them. So what are your thoughts and how do you approach interviewing people in areas that have experienced or are currently experiencing conflict?
3: I think part of it is to be aware of how they're categorizing me. You know, I may have particular ideas that are very specific about a person because I'm interviewing them because they're a combatant. Well, I mean, I'm interviewing them because, or I'm observing them, interacting with them because they're a member of an armed group. And they know that. And then they make judgments about me. They look at me. I'm male. I'm a white guy. You know, it depends on my activity. Am I kind of big or whatever? Uh, and then they say, oh, you're a sportsman. And then what this <laughs> does is this begins to shape <laughs> their interaction because I think oftentimes they're trying to figure out what their connection to me is beyond as as a researcher would be and and so forth. I mean one of the problems is to be typecast as a soldier in the field and particularly somebody coming from the United States and ah oh, you know yeah you're doing your research but you know aren't you interested in other things and so kind of a two-way process and I think the value also of working in teams because oftentimes as a researcher, if you're working with somebody else and you know for me as a male, if I'm working with somebody who's not male, then you know there are certain techniques that we can use to try to maybe shape the situation so that we can get access to different kinds of information or maybe do tag team or something of, of that sort. So it's, it's a complicated process as, as a lot of field research is. Mm-hmm. It's tricky, right?
1: Because we we want to on the one hand be sure that we don't do anything to endanger our interview participants or our research subjects, but we also don't want to do anything to endanger ourselves or, you know, as Zoe pointed out, any graduate students who might have with us or research assistants. So I guess I want to end with a logistical question for the both of you, which is what advice would you have? For other scholars who are seeking to do work in conflict prone and fragile environments let's start with will this time
3: Tell your IRB <laughs> get them used to the idea that that you want to go to places that maybe they're not very familiar with mm-hmm. and and try to educate them as the, to the, how to evaluate your office of risk management in a lot of universities the bureaucracy will freak out and a lot of it I think is also lack of familiarity. So that means being prepared with um, a very clear plan as to why you need to go to this place, and what are the boundaries? What are the limit? How much is this worth to you? And what are the very concrete red lines that will trigger uh, your departure or some kind of shift in plans? And then also, it's making use of social media to get to know as many people as possible, people who are expert, who are from a particular place, people who's maybe from outside, who have spent a lot of time there. But you know, this is the usual sort of advice and to be able to put it together that way and then hit the ground running.
1: Zoe, how about you? What kind of advice would you
2: have for for other folks who want to do this kind of research? I will say that the advice I would give probably changes year to year. But today, I can say that one of the first things that comes to mind is to ask scholars the question, is this a place you would want to study if it hadn't had violence? Because I think that forces us to really think about how we might accidentally instrumentalize people and communities and, and contexts of crisis. And it, it's not to say that your answer has to be yes, but I think it does force us to like kind of interrogate what our relationship is, even just mentally and emotionally to the people that we will meet. I think the other thing that I would say is like, definitely don't study a conflict expecting to be first or expecting to kind of, Columbus it, right? That with the students who I've been supervising who have studied active conflicts, they've run into enormous logistical challenges about, you know, just to use the example I gave before of Northeast Nigeria and the IRB, the risks that I think a seasoned researcher can take can and should be different than the risks that a graduate student might take as they're beginning to build their toolkit for field work and for studying political violence in particular. And so studying places that are more secure or more stable is usually smart from a you know, professional development perspective because you can usually plan a little bit more. But I think those would be the two main things is to really think about, you know, would you study it if not for the violence? And do you want, do you want it bad enough to jeopardize your timeline, right, to risk that maybe you can't do the field research or data collection that you anticipate, or the timeline will get thrown off, etc. Those, I think, are the two biggest things that people need to think about well in advance of a project so that when it's derailed, you're still comfortable with the choice you've made. That is excellent
1: advice all around from both of you. Zoe and Will, thank you so much for joining us today to discuss your absolutely fascinating field research For more great stories and insights on fieldwork from our guests today and over 40 other scholars, check out our book with the same name as the podcast. As always, we'd like to thank Boston College, Clark University, MIT, and Columbia University Press for their support for the book and for this podcast. See you next time on Stories from the Field.